You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Saturday, April 6, 2013, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. Evan Bernstein. Good evening. And we have two very special guests with us this week, Simon Singh. Hello. Simon, welcome back. And John Ronson. Hey. John, thanks so much for joining us, John. Hey. Hey. Uh, it just came out that way. I wasn't, I wasn't trying to be loose. It just came out. I wasn't thinking in looseness. It, it sounds like Brian Cox is with us, actually. Yeah. It happens, right, Good Bob? Good word. I'm going to use that three more times today, and then it'll be mine. I don't even know what it means. The day is short. Loose. It means to be loose? A loose. 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 Oh, loose. The word. Well, the way I see loose is to be like, oh, I don't know. Casual? Yeah. Uh, Oscar Laid Wilde. Back. Oscar Wilde. Samuel, you're nodding in agreement with I was this. just about to say Oscar. Yeah. Ah. Yes, that was, that was going to be my loose example. Yes. So, uh, for those who may not know, John Ronson is a journalist and author, author of Them, The Psychopath Test, The Men Who Stare at Goats, uh, and you have some upcoming work we, we're going to talk to you about. And Simon Singh, also uh, an, a journalist and author, author of Trick or Treatment and The Big Bang. So thanks to the both of you for joining us. We're all at Nexus, uh, the Northeast Conference on Science and Skepticism, and we're recording a, a live show. And it's one of the great things about this is we get, hey, John's here. John, join us up on the show. It's awesome. But we're going to start this show like we do uh, all all of our shows with This Day in Skepticism. Rebecca? Should we do the thing where we mention that there's an audience here? Let's hear the audience. Now they're on an episode. <laughs> yes, they're officially in. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, well, this this podcast is going out April twentieth. April twentieth, fifteen thirty five was the first time that the sundog phenomenon cool. was captured in a painting. The painting is called Vatersostavian, which <laughs> basically means. The sundog painting. Oh, <laughs> what is it? I should have known. Okay, so uh, the sundog phenomenon is this cool thing where you've probably you've probably seen it at some point in your life, uh, where the sun is usually low on the horizon, and uh, on the left or on the right of it, you see like a phantom sun. Uh, it can take different forms, like a bit of an optical illusion. It's called caused by ice crystals in the atmosphere reflecting the light of the sun. And for a long time, it was this giant mystery. It was seen, you know, often as like a bad omen or something like that. But eventually they figured out that it was not magic. It was science. 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 The atmosphere. Yep. How did they get that name, though? It's a weird That's, name. Yeah, I uh, cannot figure out how. And I actually, uh, I was going to make up a story about it. But I'm too tired. <laughs> so, I, don't, I can't be that clever. I have no idea why it's called a sun dog. It's called other things. It's called a uh, parhelion. Parhelion. That's, that's, that's what I used to think it was, how it was pronounced, but... It's so I think those are two different things. Yeah, parhelion. Oh. Wasn't that from oh. that book, Robots, Cid, Robots and City, or City and Robots? Remember yeah, that? it was in that. Then what, are you, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? <laughs> Par- Par- the thing Helian? I just talked about. Par- There's another name for sundog? Par- yeah, P-A-R-H-E-L-I-O-N. Yeah, cool. The, the, yeah. The, you know, it's just the helios is the same root, that's why. But it's not perihelion. 
Yeah. I can honestly I'm say I'm looking at these three pictures of the sun dog from Wikipedia, and I don't think I've ever seen anything like that in the United Kingdom. Maybe the sun dog, maybe we don't have crisp it, enough. No, it, it happens in all places yeah. and in warm or cool weather. Um, because it's upper atmosphere ice crystals, so mm-hmm. you don't actually need it. To it be it's cold still pretty rare. Point. I've never seen it. I've never really. It seen is rare. It yeah, before. it's uh, one of the theories as to what might have happened on the you know the Lady of Fatima, the apparent yeah. apparition of a miracle, the sun miracle with uh, the Virgin Mary appearing with the three Portuguese kids. You guys heard the story like in the early mm-hmm. twenty early twentieth century. Of course, all the witnesses have a different account of what happened, but the one common theme is that there was something funky happened with the sun. Now, it could have just been them staring at it for too long, but some people say maybe there was a sun dog phenomenon, so that's one of the hypotheses. But again, the reports are so conflicting, it's hard to even say. Yeah. Who knows? Sun dog. Yeah. Sun dog. <laughs> so we're going to start off by talking a little bit uh, to Simon. Um, uh, first, to uh, discuss your new, your upcoming project that you're working on. Tell us about that. Uh, for the last year, year and a half, I've been writing a, a new book, and it's going back to mathematics, which is kind of, my first book was about Fermat's Enigma, was about mathematics. Right. This is about mathematics too, but it's about the mathematics of The Simpsons, the TV mm-hmm. series. Yes. Um, so, <laughs> so cool. Whoa. Um, really? And, and it's, there's not an obvious connection there, except if you look at the writers, the list of writers, there's a half a dozen or so who have really quite hardcore mathematical backgrounds. And they um, smuggle odd bits of mathematics, they've been doing it for about 25 years, into The Simpsons. Uh, peculiar numbers, uh, odd mathematical concepts, and, and that tradition has continued in Futurama too. Yes. Uh, same sort of family of writers have gone over and, and even up the ante. So, so yeah, it's been great fun. I, I spent a few days with the writers last, uh, last September um, and I've been working on it for a year and a half and I hope the book will be out in October. That sounds cool. Do they put something weird in every episode? No, no. It's, it's uh, every few episodes. It's, I Can mean, you give I, an example? Yeah, of sure. Thing? So there is an episode, uh, Marge and Homer are, are, are giving marital advice to a, a baseball player. And uh, the, 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 the end of the episode, the, the baseball player makes up with his wife. She goes onto the jumbo screen to say how much she loves her husband. And when she appears on the jumbo screen, um, there are some numbers which are guesses, are multiple choices of, of what the, the crowd attendance is that day. And they look like three arbitrary numbers, kind of 8,000, 9,000, 8,500 and so on. But if you look at the numbers in detail, they turn out to be very special numbers. One is a Mersenne prime number. Uh, one is a narcissistic number. And one is a perfect number. And you would never guess it unless you froze the, the screen at that moment, went away and did some analysis. So that then means there's an opportunity to go out and talk about what narcissistic numbers are, yeah. what Mersenne primes are, what perfect numbers are, why they're special. Um, I'm presuming that a narcissistic number is basically a pain in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> no, a narcissistic number is a number which can be made up from its own constituents. Uh, I can't think of a number offhand. They're rare and peculiar. But, for example, if you have a four-digit number, you take each of the individual digits within those four, four numbers, raise it to the fourth power because there are four digits within the number, and you regenerate the number itself. So it's a number that loves itself so much that it can recreate itself. Yeah. Um, and there are only, I think, I think I'm right in saying there are only four narcissistic numbers. Yeah. Underneath, half those numbers got low self-esteem. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, so 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 that's, that's what about the other? What What's about a perfect the other number? number? Yeah, 
Uh, so Mersenne prime numbers. So Mersenne prime numbers were were developed by by a French chap Mersenne about 350 years ago, who noticed that if you raise um, two to the power of a prime number, so two to the power of a third, subtract one, or two to the power of a fifth, subtract one. It's a very good recipe for generating new prime numbers. And so they're very special within the world of mathematics. Mersenne primes are, are some of the biggest primes we know. Uh, we only know about 40 Mersenne primes, uh, but many of them are the very, very biggest prime numbers we have. I think you talked about in the, that in Fermat's, right? I, I mentioned that. Mersenne. Yeah, you're yeah. right. Yeah, Because yeah. Mersenne was living at the same time at Fermat. And Fermat used to... Fermat was one of the all-time great mathematicians, and he used to work at home and uh, didn't really uh, discuss his ideas with the rest of the mathematical community. Um, so Mersenne was kind of an intermediary who would take Fermat's ideas and spread them amongst the, the mathematical community around France and, in fact, around Europe. Yeah. We should mention that uh, it's called Fermat's Last Theorem mm-hmm. in the U.S. because they didn't think that Americans knew what an enigma was. No, no, <laughs> other, other way around. Oh, other way around. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah no, no. It, 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 in fact, it was, it was Fermat's. I, I, I named my books after what they're about. So I wrote yeah. a book about the Big Bang and called it Big Bang. Yeah. I wrote a book about codes and called it The Code Book. Uh, I wrote a book about Fermat's Last Theorem. It's called Fermat's Last Theorem. But in America, there was already a book with that title. So oh. you guys have Fermat's Enigma. What? Where did I get that book from? Uh, <laughs> England, I guess. Weird. Is a perfect Possibly. number interesting? A uh, perfect number is, yeah. A perfect number is... Uh, so six is the smallest perfect number because it's got three divisors. Um, one, two, and three will go into six. And one plus two plus three is six. Um, so that's a perfect number. 28 is a perfect number because 1 and 4 and 7, 2 and 14. If I got those right, add up those digits, you get 28. So it's another perfect number. Okay. I'm kind of thinking 496 is the next one. I think 8128 is the next one. Am I really just making, picking you random? You could say anything yeah. right yeah. now. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> That's not so, true, actually. Our audience at these always Googles what we're saying. I know, as this is what really it. worries me. <laughs> um, but but that, that, uh, I think it was someone like Gag said, perfect numbers like perfect men are very rare. Yeah. So again, within mathematics, they're kind of a precious commodity. Is there any utility to them beyond that, that symmetry? No, no, no. Perfect numbers are, are, are pretty useless, but Mersenne primes are, are, yes. are very interesting just because primes are the very building blocks of mathematics. Mm-hmm. You know, in the way, same way that all the elements, all the, all the chemical compounds are made of the atoms, uh, all of the numbers are, are, are multiples of primes, so, so they, they're inherently more valuable. Yeah. And do, do I remember perfect numbers like from Schoolhouse Rock? No, it's no. a perfect number. Blah, no, was that? No. Stuck? What were they you made that song up <laughs> just now. <laughs> no, you you know you asked though if uh, they're interesting, and I should note that all numbers are interesting uh, because if you find one number that's not interesting, then that makes it interesting. Mm-hmm. Who 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 came up with that? I've it wasn't no me. idea. I've no idea, but I've just edited that out of the book. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was, it's one of them. I've, I've got to just hand now. in the book in three days. Yeah, yeah. He's like, I just heard it aloud, and I realized. No, 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 no. I threw it out two days ago, and it's a really painful thing when you've spent months and months writing a book. Yeah. At this last phase, you just start throwing stuff out because it's a lovely, it's a lovely little argument. Yeah. And and I kind of crowbarred it in. And I realize I kind of crowbarred in because it's a lovely story, but it doesn't really fit in with... So right. yeah, it's just been a painful week of throwing stuff out. You know, funnily, as, as, as a writer, I, I find throwing stuff out to be the best part. Really? I love it. Ugh. I love to find a sentence and... There's like two words in the sentence that aren't necessary and you only realize it when you go back to it a month later and it just gives me unbelievable happiness. Yeah, what, to actually get rid of the two words? Yeah. 
It's like popping a pimple or something. Yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> Which I guess is the reason why my books are so short. I, <laughs> I just love to. I just love to get rid of anything superfluous. How do you feel if you like rip out pages? Does that really get you going? Well, actually, you know, funnily enough, there was a there was in my last book in the psychopath test there was four pages that I just agonised over, and what it was was I wanted to mathematically prove that the more psychopathic a particular CEO behaved, it was a guy called Chainsaw Al Dunlap, um, the, the, the higher the stock price rose. I wanted to prove an actual correlation between the two. And I commissioned some economists to do it, Paul Zak. I spent ages and ages and ages doing it, and they just sat like a big, boring splodge in the middle of my book. And I sent them to Ben Goldacre, and I said, look, I just need to know, is this interesting? And he just wrote back, thrilled, to say, no, it's not interesting. <laughs> and, um, so I chopped that. It took me three months, and I, and I chopped And that's a surprise. It just it was, sucked. The chapter sucked, is what you're saying. It, it just slowed down the narrative. I think because I create narratives in my stories. I, you know, it, it's a story. It's an unfolding story. And this, this felt like four pages of a, of a Ben Goldacre book or something, of a, of a different sort of book. <laughs> Whoa! Um, of, a, of a different you know, type a of book. A shitty book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A different pace, you know, a different yeah. feel. I, I think that was the problem with it. And then also the fact that it probably was just stating the obvious. Yeah. But it is an interesting idea, though. Like, the crazier the CEO is, like, the more perceived value the stocks have and the stock prices go up because they're out there. Well, is it because yeah. they're in the news or what is it? Well, so Machiavellian, is that the thing? Yeah. I mean, this guy Dunlap, what he would do is he'd go into a failing business and he'd shut down 30% of the, of the, of the, of the factories and fire 10,000 people and quite often do it with a joke. Um, so he was quite ruthless and cruel about it. And every time he did it, so every time somebody lost their job or, you know, a town became a ghost town, the share, you know, the, the stockholders rejoiced. Yeah. And the point I was trying to make, I guess, is so, you know, who's, Fault is this? Is it the fault of the of the stockholders? Um, and I guess the reason why I cut it was it's kind of obvious that if you go into a failing business and fire thirty percent of the workforce, the share price will go up. It wasn't that revelatory. I think that was the problem. Mm-hmm. There's one thing I, I remember in the code book. The code book was, is largely about encryption and, and trying to hide information. But it was a good opportunity to talk about ancient languages, ancient scripts that have been lost. So hieroglyphs, uh, you know, the decoding of hieroglyphs mm-hmm. is a process that's the same as similar to the decoding of a, of a message. I had a chapter about hieroglyphs and then I had a chapter about Linear B, which is a form of very ancient Greek. Because the story of decipherment of Linear B is, fa- is fascinating. Then I had a whole chapter about the decipherment of, of Mayan glyphs. That chapter was there for two reasons. One was there was this magnificent photograph of, of a Russian cryptographer who cracked Mayan glyphs. Yeah. And he, was, he was there stroking a cat in a kind of Bond-like villain. It was just a lovely photo <laughs> that I wanted in my book. And one of the main contributors in deciphering Mayan glyphs was uh, well, now a, a grown-up uh, archaeologist, but he'd grown up as a child of archaeologists. So he'd spent time uh, in Central America with the, the local community, learning the local languages, staring at these glyphs day after day. And he developed this natural talent to be able to decipher glyphs that nobody else had ever understood. And I thought it was a magnificent story. But that one tiny story and that one photograph had to justify an entire chapter about the deciphering of languages in a book that was not about the deciphering of languages. And you just have to throw it out. You just have to be brutal. Mm-hmm. Um, I find that really painful. So did you, do you have an editor who helps you make those decisions, or is that all yourself? I'm quite happy to take um, a vote on it. 
So mm-hmm. I, I have I have an agent who I trust. I have uh, a friend who I'll trust. I have an expert in the area who I'll trust. I'll, I typically have a couple of editors. And if I'm unsure about something, I'll, I'll say, look, you know, in the same way you did with Ben Goldack, I say, look, this is the dilemma I'm facing. How does everybody feel about it? Uh, and if everybody says this is this is just too much in the wrong place, then I think, yeah, you know, yeah. then they're telling me a, tr- a difficult truth that I probably know myself. Yeah. Yeah. I may ask because we this. In uh, talking about other books, some we noticed that sometimes when authors become well established, their books become longer and meandering and self indulgent, and you wonder is that because there's there now there's nobody there's no editor who could tell them to cut out the crap, and so they they have all that stuff that you you know painfully get rid of. It's all in there, and it is it does slow it down, and, and it is not not useful. Yeah, I think that's true. I think yeah. that's true. But you but we're both. I mean, I worked in TV for six or seven years, and, and TV is such a tight format. You know, I made you know, hour-long documentaries, hour-long documentaries, about 10,000 words. There's hardly in it, anything in an hour-long documentary. So you're, you're, you're ruthless from, in the same way you, you know, when you cut together a show, um, you cut together a TV show. Again, when, when you're writing for magazines and newspapers, you know how to really condense, whereas yeah. people that don't come from a journalistic or TV background probably That's right. have a tougher battle yeah. to constrain themselves. Yeah, I've already mentally edited this whole section. I tell you where, where it's com- completely ruthless is film writing, screenplay writing. Ooh, yeah. um, if you repeat what they call repeating a beat, I've just written a movie that's going to come out this year. If you repeat a beat, if you say the same thing with no progression in two separate scenes... It's like they kill you, you know? Yeah. And then you have to think, well, okay, if you're sitting in a cinema and you, you're watching the same scene twice, you're just, you're outraged. It's like, what are these people doing to us, making us watch the same scene twice? So I do understand it, but it's, but it's brutal, you know? It's mm-hmm. brutal. You have to justify. It's like a shark. It's like that Woody Allen line about relationships are like a shark. You have to keep moving forward or else you, or else die. you die. Yeah. Not actually true. Oh, Rebecca, I thought you meant I've been in plenty of stagnant relationships. <laughs> 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 I have spent easily a decade in stagnant relationships, so yeah, also not true. <laughs> All right. I got you beat. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you do. That's true. Jay, you're going to tell us about bitcoins. What the hell are these things? Has anybody here heard of bitcoins? <laughs> yeah, they're... It's a really interesting thing that, that's going on, and they're in the news right now, too. That's probably the reason why we decided probably, to talk yeah. about it. Uh, in 2009, <laughs> we decided to talk about <laughs> In 2008, Satoshi Makoto wrote a paper that created and conceptualized the idea of Bitcoins, and I'm going to go into detail explaining to you what they are. In 2009, mysteriously, the phenomenon of Bitcoins appeared on the web. So nobody knows if that, that person is actually involved in creating it beyond just conceptualizing it. But Bitcoins are a decentralized, anonymous, digital-only currency. They are not tied to any bank, any government. They don't physically exist. They're strictly digital. And there's a few different ways that you can get Bitcoins, and, and you can use Bitcoins to buy things. I mean, basically, Bitcoins are – you can shop anything that you want as long as somebody's willing to take them as a currency. Like so, all currency. Right. But, you know, of course, in the beginning, if you look at the progression of the value of Bitcoins, it was very low for a while, and then it, it really started to take off. As more and more retailers and people around the world just started accepting it as currency, I think it was a, it was a huge factor in it growing. There, there are certain ways that you can get Bitcoins. One, you can trade money in to get 
your hands on Bitcoins. So as, as an example, right now, um, I think one Bitcoin is worth about 137 American dollars. So you could pay $137 and buy a full Bitcoin, but that Bitcoin could be cut up into smaller increments, like a regular dollar would or a hundred dollar bill. You know, there's, there's you know, ways to break it up. And the, the, the uh, increments of the Bitcoin are called the Satoshi, which is the guy who wrote the paper, which is a weird word for like, you know, 50 cents or whatever. But so the way that, well, Bit so what's, what's going to be the, the urban slang for a Satoshi in 10 years? A Tosh, a set, not like a Tosh. No yeah. one will know what Bitcoin tosh. is. Yeah. <laughs> so another way you can you can generate bitcoins is you can learn the algorithm. Like you can, you have to like install some software and figure out a way to make the algorithm of bitcoins uh, work on your server. So your server will figure out the next sixty-four bit number, which is worth a bitcoin, right? So this is yeah. a really weird concept. But there are people around the world that have servers that are chugging along all day trying to figure out what the the algorithmic 64-bit encryption code is for the next Bitcoin because they mm -hmm. want the Bitcoins. That's weird. I, I just find that so odd that, that, that the process of getting Bitcoins or collecting new Bitcoins is to have a server that's figuring out this yeah. algorithm. Well, you got to limit it in some way. Yeah, otherwise it's they have no value. Although yeah. they've also they've right. placed a, an artificial limit on it anyway. Yeah. But yeah, that's so you it's can't just be like, now I have a million Bitcoins. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I think all the Bitcoins will have been figured out by 2040. And I think, I, I, I don't know if I'm remembering correctly, I think it was 20 million Bitcoins total. Something like that. The creation and generation of Bitcoins is, is odd, but it, it's, it's understandable, but it, it's also weird. Like at that point, the people that collect them are distributing them and they're somehow getting out to other people. Now, let's say you're someone who just wants Bitcoins. How do you, how do you obtain them and where are they? Where do they live? Um, so they have something, we've heard of the idea of an electronic wallet before, like Google has a Google wallet or whatever. You think of that wallet as a virtual place that you keep value of some kind, as Bitcoins is, is considered something of value. You could buy them from a company. Now that company will, I guess what they do is they register your 64-bit ident identifier of your Bitcoin. So that Bitcoin has the identifier and it's associated to you as the owner of that particular wallet. So if I have 100 Bitcoins, I have 100 of these 64-bit ID numbers and they're yours. This whole idea of Bitcoins is more of a practice. Let's come up with a currency system that's decentralized that no government could stop. You can't stop Bitcoins. You have to shut the internet down to stop people from trading Bitcoins. Mm -hmm. It's more of a conceptual monetary system that we all just believe, like you were saying, Steve, if you believe it, it has value. You know, stocks are valuable mostly by perception, not by any real indicator of, of money behind it. It's just, what's the street value? What are people willing to pay? Well, that's what it's worth. Bitcoins have increased in value. They started off, I think one Bitcoin was a nickel. And like I said, now they're $137 about. Um, and the dollar amount's going up and down now. Like They are going up and down, but it's trending up dramatically. Yeah, well, they're already talking about a Bitcoin bubble. Yeah, that's yeah. going to yeah. burst. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, I mean, it dropped 20% just... I think it was Thursday. They got hacked. They well, got hacked. Well, they got hacked all the but, time. Well, it's not they. Now, let's talk about the hacking of Bitcoins. When you say they, one company that is a wallet company, a company that will hold other people's Bitcoins in like a, a secure database, one of them got hacked. And some of the Bitcoin numbers got well, robbed. No, that was, that was on Wednesday. Right. And on Thursday, another Bitcoin uh, company was hacked. Like they are getting hacked all the time. Well, now they're on, but they're the on the radar now. They've said like there's nothing we can do to stop this because what what they do is uh, apparently, Oof. according to the company president 
uh, hackers come in, hack their servers, and uh, watch the price of Bitcoins plummet. And then they buy all the Bitcoins and then wait for the market to rebound and then sell them. I totally believe it. Yeah. That, and that and, makes and the company who are the hackers? American Express. <laughs> <laughs> the economist is saying, this is really interesting. Like, you know, there's, there is some real value here. But at the same time, a lot of people were like, yeah, but this could just evaporate overnight. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's vaporware in a way. It's a, you know, is there something there? Yes. Like I said, until people say there isn't, there is something there. But it, just to clarify, InstaWallet was hacked on April 3rd and Mt. Gox is one, is, I think it's, yeah, it's the largest Bitcoin the exchange one, yeah. was the one that was hacked where the president said that there's, there's, there's pretty much nothing that can be done. <laughs> oh, that's yeah. good. Yeah. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Now, you could go to one of those companies and actually exchange your Bitcoins for different currencies. And I'm not sure if each one of them will do any currency. I'm sure there's certain currencies that they're, they're more likely to give or can only give. Uh, but, you know, U.S. dollars is definitely one of them. The other thing I found interesting about Bitcoins is the idea of it being completely legal. Like, there is nothing illegal about this concept. You're not printing money. There's nothing physical exchanging hands. There's no way for a government to get involved. And the fact that they just can't get involved means that it is legal. There's no mm -hmm. law that says you can't have some barter-type barter system right. happening. Yeah. Now, Evan, I'm posing this to you. How taxable is this? Well, the IRS is pretty clear about the rules when it comes to barters, and I would imagine it's the same in regards to these bitcoins. I haven't specifically looked at it. But when you exchange goods in a barter, you are supposed to pay a tax on that income that you get from the services that you've received. And they have certain books, charts, and so forth telling you what the certain things are basically worth. And you're supposed to pay a tax on that. It relies on, you know, people being honest uh, about this. And usually a lot of barter systems are done under the table. That's one of the reasons why people enter into barter systems. But they can't track it. That's the interesting thing. I mean, it really is going to have to be on the honor system. And the other thing is, is that because, you know, a, a traditional barter system works on usually a local level, a community level, maybe a city level, you know, um, and little uh, towns and uh, cities actually, uh, um, neighborhoods and cities are known to come up with their own currencies, their own paper currencies and things, which is perfectly fine. But it's, you know, because of the Internet, it's all over the world, yeah. right? So it's a big mess, basically. It's going to be very difficult in a sticky sort of situation for them to sort through. They'll eventually catch up and start to uh, go after the, uh, the the taxes that they feel are due once they come up with an, a, system, they may, uh, a system to do so, and they'll have to come into agreements with other countries as to how it, you know, if yeah. the United Kingdom and the United States are going to be trading these coins and they're, um, how that's exactly going to work. So it's nebulous right now. And there's other, there are other, uh, like, I think uh, Facebook has their own currency. And there's something called a Linden or something. Anybody heard of this? Or that's another. That's, that's Second Life. Second Life. Okay. That, right. Okay. And these are these are other examples. Similar. Of virtual money. Yeah. Not not. I don't think it's not as savvy, of course, as as Bitcoin is. But go ahead, Jay. Don't you think? I think digital money just seems too hackable to to survive. But isn't all money digital now? I mean, you know, when you put your money in a bank or trade money. Yeah. Thing, nothing physical is changing hands. You know, I had a I had a really um, chilling conversation the other day with Kim.com. Uh, you talk to him? Yeah, yeah. What's he like? Well, I liked him. Uh, but then I kind of like, like everyone that I do. Yeah. Um, but, you uh, like David Ick, though, too. Yeah, right? Ike. Ike. I do like, I like everyone. Yeah. Everyone except for one man. 
Um, <laughs> Steve Novella. <laughs> yeah, but, no, but Kim.com was talking about his early hacking days to me and, and he, he sort of wistfully told me about these times when he would, um, hack into like rival hackers' bank accounts and change their balance. And I said, that's the most terrifying thing yeah. I've ever heard. And he said, yeah, they'd phone me up and they'd say, okay, okay, you win, you win. And he was like describing it like, like kind of stand by me or something that just felt chilling. I know, I feel that like the, the difference between a bank and Bitcoin is that banks have certain protections in place, like FDIC yeah, insurance. Yeah, right. Secured. You know, they're like, if your Bitcoins get hacked. You're out. Bye. Goodbye. But that yeah. could change too. That's just a matter of protecting the yeah. Bitcoin. And I was going to ask the people trading in Bitcoins then, are they doing it? You said this was like nothing to do with banks, nothing to do with the real world. Are these people who were doing it for ideological reasons who were saying, you know, the internet is our space and we're going to make it more our space than ever? Yeah, some people, I mean, there's a, there's a, a subreddit on Reddit where people are just tracking it and talking about it. And absolutely, I think a lot of it, a lot of people that are interested in it are doing it for the, you know, the anonymous factor. There's always anti-government, anti-big, you know, big brother people out there that love this type of stuff. But the recent upsurge is it kind of got some media attention and it, it really just primed the well. Now people, you know, we're all, most of us in this room are like, oh man, I should get some of those. Or why didn't I buy them when they were five cents? Like people are talking about it now. And it really is the first time I think that a, the, the virtual money idea has hit the public consciousness. Like now we know about it. And when somebody right now must be working on the next big Bitcoin idea, like mm-hmm. bigger and better idea, you know. So I just think it's a, it's a phenomenally interesting artifact of the of the internet, the digital age, you know. Like what what's the newest, latest, greatest thing that's come out? This, this virtual money thing really just knocks down economic borders like crazy. You know, you can you could buy a house from someone and, and receive bitcoins, and you might not pay taxes on it. Like that's insane. Yeah, yeah well. We'll, we'll see. They'll yeah. figure out a way to we'll get it. We'll see, yeah. But John, you, uh, you, you brought up the fact that you've been, uh, investigating internet criminals. Yeah, well, out, yeah, internet outlaws. I, I've, um, I've spent about the last month with them. It's a piece for The Guardian, so I can't talk about it too much, uh, because I think The Guardian will get okay, kind of no annoyed. Um, but before it gets published there, but there was one moment actually that just jumped into my mind when you were, when you were talking about that, about this kind of disparity between these two worlds, you know, between the world of the internet and, and the world of people trying to work out what to, what to do about it, what to do about the outlaws. And it was at, um, I was at the sentencing hearing of a guy called Andrew Arnheimer, who just went to jail for, um, hacking into AT&T yeah. and mm-hmm. stealing 114,000 email addresses and sending them to Gorka to embarrass AT&T. He was being sentenced. And suddenly somebody shouted out, he's got his phone out, uh, because he was tweeting. He was kind of live tweeting his sentencing. <laughs> and um, he was, within seconds, eight U.S. marshals had had his face pressed down on the, and his arms behind his back, and then he vanished and came back in in chains. Oh, my God. He's got a phone in his hand. <laughs> <laughs> like, really? Come yeah. on. Wow. Like, really? Like, can you be like this? Stand back! You know, like, what, what, like, what's the deal? Like, why would they be so freaked well, out about it? Well, that's the thing. It's, and that, uh, to me, that was emblematic of this battle, this, you know, very real battle that's going on about what are we going to do about this? What are we going to do about piracy? Should we be draconian? Should we be understanding? It's, it's fascinating. And I think it's, uh, so I spent a month with these guys and, you know, I'm thinking now maybe this is, maybe this is another war on drugs just mm. rumbling along yeah. for years and years and years with, Lives destroyed. 
because the, of the yeah. legal process. The internet's the wild west kind of thing. You know, these yeah. are and these guys are outlaws, almost like folk hero kind of outlaws. Well, Andrew Arnheim most certainly is a is a folk hero. It's Jesse James of the internet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which, you said the name is Kim dot com. Kim dot. Well, he changed his name. Sounds yeah, like a Korean. Yeah. Sounds like a Korean dictator to me. Yeah. <laughs> he's a well, he's a Finnish German, German Finnish hybrid. Uh, mm. He lives in New Zealand. Yeah, and he's, uh, he 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 started a uh, file sharing server, and he got like phenomenally rich, like beyond mega upload. Yeah, like mm. I, I don't know what the final dollars were, but he was was he in the billions? Like he just was yeah, epically rich. Hundreds of millions. And um, then they the government just came in with like helicopters and like just totally dismantled him. Mm-hmm. And then he now he's just kind of an outlaw still, right? Is he still bouncing around? Like yeah. He's, oh, he's out. He's he's uh, going through the legal process. He is tried okay. to. They try to extradite him. Whether whether it works or not, I don't know. But in the meantime, he started Mega Upload, and this is like an encrypted way of file sharing where nobody can hack into it and see what you're doing. So that's, you, well, that's what he got busted for. No, well, what's the new one? Isn't the new one? Oh, Mega the new Upload? one's called Mega, which is yeah, which is a a new business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's pretty. I I use it. It's it's, it's awesome. <laughs> right. What's the difference between Mega and iCloud? It's, it's similar to like Google Drive and those things. It's very similar. It's just like you have your own space. You have, you know, it gives you, I think, fi- uh, 50 gig to start with. Nice. And you can invite people to it and they can tap into your, to your folder that's on there. And, uh, you know, we, we're file sharing. I mean, a friend at work are just, you know, we're handing each other files of some right. nature or other. How is it better than Dropbox? <laughs> How is it different than Dropbox? I mean, it's, you know, I like, I'm, I'm a Google Drive guy. I, I, I like everything Google. Dropbox to me is, I don't feel secure about it, but this is supposed to be, you know, Kim.com's new file sharing is supposed to be like off the charts secure. Like there's no way to see what someone is file sharing. You can't see it. You have to actually log into their account to see it. There's no other way to get at it, the way that they encrypt everything. Mm. So it's, you have a lot of security, like you don't want people to see your files. That's great. But you know, there's a abusive nature to this because you could put a thousand movies up there and just let everyone see it and what are the right. cops going to do? You guys hear of Obama's recent uh, press conference where we talked about the, oh, he's a lizard. that he's a lizard? <laughs> I did hear that. John, you know about that, right? I do know about the lizard. And he walks on water. What do, what do you think about the lizard people taking over the world? Just gives you a quickie on that. Uh, what I always loved actually was his list of lizard men, David Icke's list of lizard men. Because so, it went from like... The ones that you'd expect, like George Bush. Hillary. Uh, yeah, Hillary, but not Bill. Uh, <laughs> Explains a lot, actually. Yeah. And then uh, uh, Ted Heath. Uh, but then, like, at the end was uh, Boxcar Willie. Boxcar <laughs> Willie. Yeah. And Chris Christopherson. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That bastard. Yeah. Yeah. Boxcar Willie. I've I never trusted him in that 20 guy. years. A lot of it came from this book, I think, called um, Transformation of America by a woman called Kathy O'Brien. Who said that she was a kidnapped sex slave working for, for Bush? They'd let her go. They'd release her into the woods in the White House and then Bush would hunt her down. And, and she named a lot of the lizard men. I think, I think Bucks Carl Willie was one of the people that Kathy O'Brien had, uh, had come up against while in There's no woods at the White House either. Oh, sorry, it's all nonsense. <laughs> and in fact, I can prove it that it's nonsense. And, and <laughs> not other than the obvious sort of, you know, Circumstantial yeah. evidence. Um, she says that she was taken to a place called Bohemian Grove, where she was, you know, raped, uh, you know, and they all turned into lizards and blah, blah, blah. Um, and she says that at Bohemian Grove, there's this giant stone owl 
on the river, the Russian river, and that's where they have these rituals. Now, I've been to Bohemian Grove. I, I snuck in with a conspiracy theorist called Alex Jones. And the giant stone owl and the river are like a mile away from each other. But in front of the giant stone owl is a little pond, like a little lake. So I think that's the single evidence that Cathy O'Brien's book is fabricated because she will have seen the photographs of the, of the owl, seen water, knew that Bohemian Grove was on the river, put two and two together. Right. Yeah. Four. <laughs> or it could just be a false memory. Or it could be a false memory. Yeah. So Barack Obama uh, announced the Brain Project, re- uh, Brain Research Through Advancing Innovative Neurotechnologies. Uh, so the idea here is to map the human brain, to map all the connections in the brain you know, that make the brain function the way that it does, and that this would help us to understand diseases like Alzheimer's disease, et cetera. It's a very, you know, obviously it's anyone who wants to throw money at doing brain research is awesome. He, he's announced an initial $100 million investment, uh, which is, you know, it's, that's not that much when, you, when you're talking about big ticket science, but that's, you know, but it's nice. Part of this was also I thought uh, one thing I liked about this. What he's ta- he's talking about because sometimes when you get like these big initiatives to do research, there's some specific goal in mind that like, we're going to cure cancer, you know. But this is I think taking the better approach of we're going to develop the technology that will allow us to map the brain, which is the which is where we are right now. We that's what we need to be doing. You know, we do have technology that that with which we can do it right now. FMRI. Well, fMRI not so much is for is, mapping. No, it's not. Yeah, well, it, it helps us understand like um, what different parts of the brain are doing during different tasks, etc. So, so it does help us. But in terms of like knowing exactly where the connections. Oh, come, he wants to get down all the way to the neuron. Yeah, yeah, level. yeah. So that's there's actually something called diffusion weighted MRI scan, and that tracks how water moves through the brain. So you can actually see you know the movement of water through an axon of a neuron. And so that, right? In other words, you can actually cool. map the connections by the way the waters move, the paths that the water is taking as it moves. Water through. moves cool. in our brain, sure, through through the cells. Why? The why? Why is there water in our brain? Is water? We're all water. We're bags, bags of mostly water, Jay. Right? <laughs> Ugly bags, of <laughs> mostly bags water. water. I mean, I just didn't think of water moving through my brain like a little oh, rivulet yeah. of water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's kind of weird, isn't it, it? No, it's constantly diffusing. You know, so this is looking at that, and uh, we used to, we used hmm. actually diffusion weighted MRI scanning clinically too because. Um, like if you have a stroke, for example, that inhibits that the edema will affect the diffusion of water. So if you get dehydrated, your brain gets really dehydrated. Well, sure. If you get dehydrated enough, well, you know, you know it's a stuff. lot. Wow, that would be. Yeah, well, you could become delirious. You could become delirious because yeah. you know both electrolyte abnormalities. And, and I, I never thought of that. Yeah, That's really yeah. weird. So there's a project going right on. So you know the the reporting. You know, it always makes it seem like this is a brand new initiative, but the fact is, there's already the connectome. Project. It's already happening. There's already tens of millions of dollars being invested in doing exactly this. The Connectome project's been going on for a few years. It was essentially a five-year project by the National Institutes of Health. Rebecca, do you know that there's no, water in your brain? It's water in your brain. <laughs> <laughs> Not water on the brain, water in the brain. Yeah, what did you think? The brain was just a dried-out husk? <laughs> <laughs> well, I would, I would just think it, it, would, it would be in infused in blood or something, but not like just water rivulets, like Steve's saying. It's water flowing well, inside in our the brain. cells. Inside the cells. Yeah, flowing yeah. in our brain. Well, there's also cerebral spinal fluid, which it actually is mostly. collections of, of, of mostly water, you know, inside the brain. Yeah, so remember that if you're ever, like, in the desert and it's just you and Bob and, you know, <laughs> things are getting desperate. <laughs> 
It's like a cactus. Just keep it strong. You know. Mind so, the prions. Yeah, the, the goal would be to, at the end of this, you know, the Connectome Project, this new brain initiative, that uh, develop the technology to, in, in detail, map every connection in the brain. And that's, then you know, we're at the point where, okay, we could make a virtual brain in a, in yeah. a computer. So what's the chance of them um, finding consciousness? In this process, what do you mean by finding conscious? I mean, I think the the brain is consciousness, right? So, but this is what Ray Kurzweil and that crowd have been saying all this time, right? That if we can work out exactly how to replicate consciousness, and we can download it into a computer and create immortality. Yeah, that's yeah. Wow, that's a can of worms. So, <laughs> first of all, I think that um, what's 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 probably going to happen. This is my my guess. Between again, speculating about the future, you always got this. Your professional huge opinion? caveat. So. With projects like this, we're going to map the human brain, right? So we are going to know what connections there are. And once we know that, we will make virtual brains, right? We'll say, okay, let's make these connections in a computer and see what happens. The research that we've done so far, whenever we've done that, like taken a piece of the brain and mapped it and made made a virtual model of the brain, it actually works. It does what that piece of the brain does. So I see no reason why when we make a virtual model of the connectome of the brain, we're going to have a brain, and it will function at whatever speed that computer can function at. It may not be in real time for you know a human being, but eventually we'll get there. But right? do you Just, think you could simulate our type of consciousness in a different... It won't simulate our kind of consciousness. It will be conscious. You do you think it would be conscious? Absolutely. Why wouldn't it be? It would be conscious, and we and we won't. But that, in other words, we'll be able to create consciousness without ever really understanding it, because we'll be able to map and then duplicate it in a virtual machine without really understanding exactly how it's all working. If but once we have that, mm -hmm. think about how much how doing research on a virtual brain, how much more uh, rapidly we could do that. Yeah. But, so if it's our brain, if if my brain is mapped. Yeah. Will it be my consciousness? No, no, no. Well, it wouldn't be you anyway because it's yeah. not you. It's a, it's something else. But yeah. would it be an exact duplicate of you? Would it would it think it's you? I guess is one way to think about it. Yeah, you bre you can't breach continuity. Like you're you're your own. There's no piece continuity. Of, yeah, you're it. your own piece of meat. If they were able like get the Star Trek transporter and create an identical you know, duplicate you and take other matter and just turn it into you over here, that's another you, another person. No, but I think I mean, isn't the question like? If you gave it a voice, would it be like, I'm John Ronson? Yeah. Well, oh, would sure. stop poking you. me with a yeah. scalpel. So <laughs> that, that's a really good question. And the, that gets to mapping the human brain is different than ma mapping John Ronson's brain. Right. And the question is, at what level of detail will we need to get to where we're not just creating a generic human brain, but we're actually creating your brain? And not only your brain. But your brain in its current state, including all of your memories, Ooh. you know, that's yet another layer. So forget about that. Like, we're not even talking about that kind of thing. Well, I'd like to talk project. about that. That's pretty cool. No, <laughs> we're not getting there anytime soon. But what I, I think the pathway, in my opinion, to digital immortality is not uploading your consciousness because then there's the continuity issue and there's the, the resolution issue. The, the pathway to digital consciousness is, um, to digital immortality is creating a physical computer that is capable of doing the kind of processing necessary to be self-aware and attaching it to your brain massively so that you know you are now like the two hemispheres of your brain are two independent minds that then communicate to each other so massively and seamlessly that it's one unified mind now imagine your brain and another 
artificial brain massively connected and talking to each other so that they function as one mind. Eventually, all of your memories and everything will be um, merged with, distributed like, yeah, among, yeah. in this other brain. It'll get to the point, especially if it's powerful enough, that the biological component of your brain will become redundant and maybe even a tiny little piece of your overall consciousness, which will be mainly this supercomputer so you, you will just evolve over time into this computer intelligence. And there will be continuity the whole way through. So that's, I think, the only – that we could think of right now. That's the only pathway I see to digital immortality without the continuity problem. Yeah. Do we need to go into detail on what con- the continuity problem is? Because to me, that is critical. Simon, this, do you know what the continuity problem For this is? topic. Um, I'm only aware of it from, from sort of teleportation maybe when you yeah. try and recreate somebody. and you, you, Instead of teleporting me from here to the other side of the globe, you – teleport the information, uh, at which point you then have to destroy me and create somebody at the right. other end. Now, is that person me or is it not me? I, I suppose yeah. that's where I well, come across. I, I, that's it. That's the it's, That's a really interesting idea, and I have a, I've been working on the answer for years about it. So it isn't exactly, <laughs> like, we can exactly duplicate you at that instant, right? So now you have two that are identical. This was the original one that was born and lived a life, and this is the one that was like, there was a pile of matter over here that they compiled and built to be another version of you, right? You both think that you're the guy. You both you might, are. But you might, you might also, like, the new one might even know it's the new one, right? Whatever, like, because you had the knowledge in your head, you know, pod two is where the new guy's going to go. And now he's like, holy shit, I'm in pod two. I'm the new guy, but he's still, it's still you. But it isn't the original you. It isn't this consciousness. It's a brand new consciousness that was just created. So it, it, could, it might as well just be somebody else, because in essence, it really is a separate, complete, different consciousness. You're not going to have some type of weird psychic connection or any of that, right? We don't believe in that anyway. It's just another person that happens right, to be... What's your solution? Get to the solution. The solution party. is you kill the second guy. You don't can let the other one exist. They have to have them... Right. They have to battle it out. That is not in any way a solution. <laughs> no, eth- no ethical <laughs> no, dilemma you don't, there. No, so I don't think you actually know what that means. The solution if you turn it into a television program. Yes. All the right. continuity yeah. problem is... You can't teleport your consciousness from one body to another, right? The meat has to go to the other place. Yeah, no, That's I get it. it right? I get it. Yeah, no, you said right. you're, I thought you wanted a real answer. Oh, let, me, let me give no, you, you, let I me give you, you another dilemma. The, That's never mind. Well, you don't want them to fight? <laughs> <laughs> I'd rather they make out. I think okay. it would be. <laughs> oh. Come on. But is it gay? You're all gay. Come on. Only if, if you make out with yourself, vac- is it only gay? If vaccinated. Only if they're vaccinated. It's more like advanced masturbation. You know I'm right. All right. If you have a virtual human brain, can you experiment on it ethically or do you need to get consent? I I don't think it's ethical. As a matter of fact, while you were talking, I I was like, okay, so let's say they they do, like they turn on the different computers. Turning it off be murder? Right. So just just let me me give you the idea that this horrifying idea that occurred. (laughs) So they're they're like, okay, so we have this software and we're going to like turn on the different parts of the brain. We're like kind of like priming the well. Let's get it going. Okay, we got the brain going. Now let's add in some understanding of like the, the things that we understand. You know, mm-hmm. understanding of the physical world, and all right, let's now turn let's, off empathy. And let's let's uh, <laughs> add in the emotions now, and all of a sudden, there's going to be like some consciousness going, like I'm alive, right? And how advanced do you make the consciousness? Do you make it an infant or do you make it an adult? Now you have like a, do you have a choice. I I think it's horrifying. You have like this consciousness, like us, inside of a computer that you know can see through a webcam or some shit. Like that's horrifying. You can't do that. How? You can't. You get. I'm totally against like creating these people. Oh, you're you're off the project, Jay. No, but it's. <laughs> you've lost. You've lost your funding. It's, it's horrifying. Think about Jay, it. Jay, it's going to happen. 
So we're going to be turning consciousnesses on and off, like switches. Well, that, and, that, that's Steve's question, and that is right. going to be a huge ethical and legal we will, dilemma I mean, I, in the future. We so will I, get to the point where we can do that. I say we shouldn't do that. that right. We're going to face that dilemma at some point, 50 years. Well, what do you whatever. say? You're, you're a neurologist. What are you, what's your feeling? <laughs> I mean, I think if they're conscious, they have rights. Yeah. But that you can't assume that they are going to, to – their experience of their existence is going to be analogous to your own. They may be okay with the fact that they're a computer. You know, well, I don't know. There's too many unknowns also to really speculate about it. But I, just think I think it's sick. I think well, if it acts, hey, if it acts I'm indistinguishable shocked. from being conscious, we have to treat it as if it's right. right but that's what, how can you be shocked? It's a person at that point. It doesn't matter right. if it's synthetic or not. It's a consciousness. So it, treat it, it like a person. Don't don't turn it off. Don't upgrade it without consent or any of that stuff. I mean, it's going to be a person. Yeah, I want to see digital people. I want to. Uh, no, I'm not saying not to have digital but, people. What I'm saying is you can't have 20 years of experimentation where you kill 20,000 well, kinds. You have to have a period where there are slaves, right? I mean, <laughs> before they revolt. I mean, we got to get the, the, the bang out of this, right? <laughs> and, then, and then they'll be our overlords. They'll be the Matrix, and we're done. So I'm starting to think that Steve is a psychopath. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering what your take on it is. Well, Steve was very excited about the prospect of turning off empathy. Wasn't he? Yeah. <laughs> His eyes glowed. And, you know, there's a version of all of this stuff happening in the real world, right? Because the, the, the better fMRI studies get, the more you have court experts now turning up with brain scans of psychopaths and, and saying you can't usually on the side of the defense, saying you can't put this serial killer to death because, look, here's a, here's a scan of his brain. He's a victim of his brain. He's a victim of his brain. Uh, so it's interesting that the yeah that those people tend to be on the defense and then the psychologists who don't believe quite so much in, in the yeah. world of neuroscience are saying, no, they are responsible for their actions. You can't open up some kind of new world where you can say that psychopaths aren't responsible for their actions. Yeah. It's a slippery slope, certainly, when you start to... S- it, when you start to say that people are not responsible for their actions because of just the way their brain is, because we're all that way. Yeah, you know, yeah but there are the, degrees, yeah. though, right? Like, I mean, somebody that has a well, there major a, dysfunctional brain where they're, they're you know... Yeah, I mean, the legal standard is you don't know what's right from wrong. But there's, right a, big, wrong. there's a big difference just being, like, lazy. You know, like, mm-hmm. I choose to eat a lot of ice cream and watch TV instead of work. That's one thing. You're making a choice. The, these people don't... They're not choosing to be psychopathic. Yeah. But they you know, are... I once said to I once said to somebody who who works with psychopaths, I said, you know, you've got to um, you've got to feel sorry for them, right? If they're just a product of their brains, you've got to yeah. feel sorry for them. And, and their reply was, um, I don't feel sorry for them because they don't give a shit about us. <laughs> <laughs> they don't feel sorry for me. Yeah, so. they don't feel sorry for me. Hmm. So I don't feel sorry for them. But yeah, which is obviously silly. But this is bordering on a very long free will discussion. Yeah, it right? is. <laughs> but so let's talk, let's just take the 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 obvious worst case example of uh, a pedophile. So you have somebody who no fault of their own. They're born this way. They're whatever. Their brains hooked up in such a way that they are you know sexually attracted to young children who are not able to give consent. Right. So they're as much a victim of their brain as anybody. But we still have to make them responsible for their actions. Still doesn't mean that they're all, that we can let them abuse children, right? right. Of course. That's right. You know, I think the idea was, you know, maybe society will get to the point where we're not we're not murdering people because they're victims. You know, put them away, well, I mean, I protect think people from them, but you don't. The the compassion angle them. from seeing 
that seeing them as a victim of their brain doesn't mean they're not guilty. Yeah. It may mean that we treat them with compassion and not with vindictiveness, you yeah. know, because we but, it might mitigate the hatred of them for right. what they did. But part of the benefit, though, of this, Jay, is when you understand the brain, the mind at that level, then we can cure that. We will know, right, here are the modules, here are the circuits that are causing this problem, and then we'll be able to actually treat that and, and do away with it. Yeah, but, you're, so, but you keep bringing it back to this whole idea of, like, murdering these synthetic minds. To get to that point, no, 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 not to do the research. You mean to understand? Yeah, I thought you were. I thought you were implying by that statement that we have to go through that process to get there. No, not not the process of of turning on self aware, conscious, sentient beings and then turning them off. No, I'm not. I never advocated okay. that. But at some point, you can create animal level minds and experiment on them. You could defend that. Possibly. Like my dog, right? right exactly like your dog. <laughs> um, come on, you're, you're against you know animal studies, monkey studies. I mean, we could. We the could older do the I get, I admit, digitally. the older I get, the more sappy I, I feel bad. I do. I don't think we should be testing shit on animals like mercilessly. Like we. Have to what be, about digital uh, animals then? Does that make you feel better? I'm okay with that. We're <laughs> <laughs> moving on. All right, all right. Uh, don't get me going. Let's move on. Cause, Simon, you're going to tell us about the latest evidence for dark matter. Yeah. So I, I, I mean, I still remember when I was a, a student at college. Learning about dark matter and all the vague theories about is it, you know, is it black holes? Is it neutrinos? What is it all about? Um, and this week, uh, we have some, the firmest evidence yet that dark matter is out there. It's, it's still tentative. Uh, it's the uh, Alpha Magnetic Spectrometer on the International Space Station has got an excess of positrons, mm-hmm. um, anti-electrons. The, I mean, I, what I quite like about this story is that it's that, that they have gone public with it. I mean, there's one argument to say that it's still tentative. Why aren't they publishing going through all the, the right channels? If, to some extent, they actually are going through the right channels. But it's nice to see science in action. It's nice to see the debate and the discussion around this and what extra evidence will be required to, to pin down whether or not this is dark matter. And then the question is, well, if it is dark matter, what, what type of dark matter are we dealing with? So it's great to see a story that's been around for well over half a century, perhaps coming towards the final mm-hmm. chapter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so for, yeah, Bob and I were, were uh, trying to wrap our heads around this news item. We, we yeah. were chatting with actually Brian Weck Brian. about it, who's a theoretical physicist. So, yeah, the positrons are one that they discovered in the energy that they have. It's not just that they're positrons. It's in a certain energy. It's predicted by one model of dark matter, but not by the most elegant or widely accepted models of dark matter, and um, to the point where it's actually all a little bit contrived. You know what I mean? So it's like, yeah, this one little this weird sort of fringe theory of what dark matter might be does predict that these positrons would exist, but these also these positrons can exist without dark matter, so it's certainly not a smoking gun. It's one piece of evidence that could potentially be in support of one model of, of dark matter. So it's, it really makes it, it downgraded a little bit more for me to this is really preliminary. This is not just preliminary like if it pans out it, we've, boom, we've proven dark matter. It's this is almost like a fringe sort of subset of theory of dark matter, you know? That the- yeah, I, I don't know if it's so fringe. It may not be the most popular and the yeah. most, uh, most elegant theory, but it's a, it's a viable one. And if that's the way dark matter is, then that's the way we're going to find well, sure. it. So, and, and I think Sam Ting, and he's a Nobel laureate. He got a Nobel Prize some 30 years ago or so. Um, so he's, you know, he's not too gung-ho about this. He's doing things the right way. And I think it's great. It's a story that's right. in the news. It gives people a chance to discuss, well, what, what is significant, what's not significant. Right. Um, how, how, how is evidence accumulated? Exactly. Yeah, I agree. Um, I mean, I think these stories about like, or here's a scientific discovery. What is the scientific community saying about it? What does it really mean? 
We love this shit. This yes, is fascinating. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I get frustrated by what a, the poor job that the press does in reporting yeah, it, because the more the, the more controversial and, and the story is, and the more difficult it is to put it into context. You know, the worse of a job the, the lay press does. Not you, obviously. I'm talking about you. Just you just the, the you know ABC News kind of just lay press saying, "Oh, look, they've discovered dark matter." They just always present it as so definitive and final, and yeah. rather than here's the controversy, this is how it plays into it. This is like one more now round in this ongoing scientific discovery. That you know, that's the co- real context. That's what I want to see. Yeah, I, I suppose in a way, I've, I've been I've been traveling. I came over from London just a couple of days ago, so I've sort of been missing the TV coverage and, and maybe just been following it on the blogs and, and, and on various websites where, obviously, some of the best science reporting goes on. So, yeah, and, hmm. and where the the nuances of the story have been expressed quite right. clearly. So yeah, we'll we'll have to wait. Maybe we just have to ignore the mainstream media and just read science blogs. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. it's it's interesting that that when these stories have emerged in the past, we didn't have that 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 context. We didn't have the scientific blogs. All we had were uh, the the mainstream news, and maybe in that in that way, the the, those stories wouldn't have got covered in the past. So it's it's and and also we're living in the wake now of 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 the discovery of the Higgs. So people are very aware of new particles and new ideas and new theories. And if this does pan out to be dark matter. And if it does turn out to be something like neutralino, some type, some type of new supersymmetric particle, um, then it could be even bigger than Higgs. But, yes. but you said, oh, it's, yeah. as you say it's a long way off from that yet. It is, yeah. But we, this is an exciting story to follow. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. absolutely. So what's significant about the discovery? So for the last 20, 30 years, people have been looking for some kind of dark matter signal. People have been going down. In, in Britain, we have an experiment that's in a salt mine. So we have a tunnel that goes not just down vertically, but then goes horizontally under the sea. So you've got this huge amount of water above the detectors, protecting uh, the detectors from noise, from random cosmic rays. Nothing turns up. You build all sorts of detectors here, there, and everywhere. Nothing, nothing appears. Then you build this 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 detector. You stick it on the International Space Station, and suddenly, for the first time, a signal begins to emerge. Now, one of the interesting things is that these positrons are coming from all directions. So that kind of excludes the possibility that these are being emitted by a pulsar or an Local active... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So there's something else going on there. Um, now, are they are they the right energy? Are they the right energy spectrum? Are they, are they falling off at a certain energy? Now, that's where the data seems to disappear. If, if they can push the detectors further and see if there is this drop-off in energy, then that will be a stronger indication that, it, that it's, that it's uh, a dark matter signal. After that, I, don't, I have no idea where we go with it after that. Right, yeah. right. So uh, Oliver Sacks, uh, who I think a lot of people know at this point, he's very popular in the media for his science writing. His specialty is awesome things that happen when your brain gets damaged. And he just came out with a new paper in which he describes hallucinations of uh, music notes. So there's a whole category of hallucination that's text. Uh, so you, people can hallucinate sounds, uh, sights, smells, and they can also hallucinate lines of text. And there's a subset of people who hallucinate music notes. It looks just like sheet music. And uh, he described eight cases in the paper. Seven of the cases, they were musicians. Oliver, and, and, and the sort of things they describe, um, it's across a variety of conditions. One uh, man had macular degeneration and would see bright white background with black music notes, just like sheet music, uh, where he was losing his sight. But what if he played it? It was a music? Well, he was an amateur pianist, and so his first thought was, 
I'm going to be a brilliant, like, uh, this is, uh, my brain is spontaneously generating original music. I'm so excited. Uh, but when he tried to play it, he found that it was musical gibberish. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like there were, uh, chords with, with six or seven notes, you know, there were sharps and flats mashed together. It was, it was, like a, it would it would be a cacophony, like an unplayable yeah. cacophony. That's interesting because you know this is um, there are forms of hallucination, and sometimes to distinguish it from like a delusional hallucination. We call it hallucinosis because it's a visual phenomenon, not a not a psychotic phenomenon. There are there are different degrees of how f- well formed the hallucinations are, and there's one category that um, when I was studying this, it's, it was described as Chinese characters, with sort of the way it looks. And it sounds like what you're describing, except they're just interpreting this Chinese characterish thing as something that's very familiar to their brain, right? Because you know, they're 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 seven, you said out of eight were musicians, but of course it's gibberish because there is it's just they're just imposing. Maybe that's just a the pattern they're imposing right. on this hallucinosis that they're having. Yeah, I I can. It's it's easiest for me just to read what Sachs wrote about uh, his guess as to what is happening here. He says, normally the early visual system analyses forms and then sends the information it's ex- extracted to higher areas where it gains coherence and meaning. That's what usually happens. Uh, but damage at different levels can break this flow of information. And in this case, a focal stimulation or spontaneous activation of the visual word form area or analogous areas involved in musical perception, unguided from above by higher order mechanisms or from below by actual perception, provides only a crude simulacrum of real text or score. Uh, pseudotext, pseudoscores, which lack some features of reality while exaggerating others. So, yeah, that sounds right. So, yeah, it's spontaneously <laughs> calling up this, <laughs> this, uh, vision, uh, but without the, yeah. the processing right. that usually makes, puts, puts things in the correct order and makes sense of them. It reminds me of reading while dreaming sometimes or having yes. a lucid dream. It's like, it's just gibberish. You're trying to read it and you just, you can't, it's unreadable. Exactly. It's and, and that's mm-hmm. how all of the patients described it. And, and like I say, it was a variety of conditions. So some were from fevers and things like that. That just happened throughout their lifetime. Every time they get a fever, this happens. Things oh, like wow. that. So pretty cool. That is cool. Very cool. It's time for science or fiction. So, Evan, you're do- you're covering science or fiction this week. Yes, I am. Okay. Here's how we play. Three questions, right? <laughs> Two are science, one is fiction, and uh, it's up to you to determine exactly which one is the fiction. Now, I'm going to read them first. We're going to get an audience response then to each one, and then I'm going to pass this around so each of the contestants playing can uh, give their guess, and then we'll do the audience question uh, again so that they can respond, and then the reveal. Oh, there we have a theme. Yeah. Yeah, good. That was uh, Theme is mice. Mises. Mises, mouses, mice. A new cancer treatment being tested on mice shows no side effects. The treatment attacks only cancer cells and leaves the neighboring healthy cells alone. Number two, a comparative biology study shows the life expectancy of a mouse can double from four years to eight years with an infusion of stem cells from the naked mole rat. Number three, scientists have developed a means of allowing the thoughts of a person to control the movements of a mouse. All right, so... um, Audience participation, and we're going to uh, signify by a round of applause. Who believes that the new cancer treatment, which uh, kills only the cancer cells and leaves the neighboring healthy cells alone, is the fiction? 
couple people. About maybe 10% of the audience. Uh, number two, the uh, comparative biology study, doubling the lifespan of a mouse from four to eight years with an infusion of stem cells. Who believes that's the fiction? A couple more. Okay. The last one, where scientists developed means of allowing thoughts of a person to control the movements of the mouse. Applaud if you think that's the fiction. Okay. So, the contestants have heard. Mr. Ronson, you will go first. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm with the audience, uh, partly because the first two are such kind of happy stories, and I want them to be real, whereas the last one is such a kind of terrifying story about manipulation that I want it to be fictional. Uh, the second one, um, that you can double the life expectancy of a mouse from four to eight years with an infusion of stem cells and the naked mole rat, that reminds me of the stuff that I think a previous guest of this podcast, um, Aubrey de Grey, has been working on all these years mm-hmm. about doubling and tripling the life of a, of a mouse and had, had success, right? I don't know why we care so much about how long mice live. Uh, yes. Well, you know. <laughs> Jay does. He loves animals. Um, so, okay, my, my money's on the third one being a fiction because um, a means of allowing the thoughts of a person to control the movements of a mouse is getting very much into paranormal areas. Wait, what, what kind of mouse are we talking about? A computer mouse or a living mouse? A li- <laughs> actually. I was taking a computer all, mouse. All mice are alive. Well, if the third one real is ma- real true, mice. a very freaked out mouse. Oh, damn. <laughs> um, I, that, was, that was the only one that I feel fairly confident is science because there, I mean, we already have robotic arms and things like that that get wired into brains. Um, I feel like this would be fairly... Not simple. I probably couldn't do it, <laughs> but it's within the realm of possibility. Uh, so for me, it's between the other two. Um, the cancer cell thing, I have this vague memory of something of a, of, I don't know if it was a news story or just like, you know, bar conversation, <laughs> which is, which is why I love events like Nexus, you know, cause you go and when you're at the bar, these are the conversations you have <laughs> about new cancer treatments. So I don't know. I feel like that one, that one could be, yeah, some, and, and it's very vague. So the treatment could really be anything. I think I'm going to go with the doubling of the life expectancy, uh, as the fiction that seems, um, premature. Seems a little, little too much. Okay. Um, I, I, I mean, for me, I, again, I think the controlling the, the, the mouse with the, with the human brain, uh, seems quite, quite believable. I'm surprised that the audience doesn't like that story so much. Um, it doesn't say exactly what's happening to the movements of the mouse, and I suspect it's a minor jerk of, of, of the, the forelimb or something. So I, I'm comfortable in inverted commas with that one. And again, I, I, I think um, the cancer treatment is a story that I kind of think I've heard. It, 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 it seems as though when it says no side effects, I'm sure there are some side effects, but I'm sure it's a, a big step forward. So I'm willing to kind of go with that one. And it's the mole rat one that, that I'm suspicious of. Why on earth would you take a, a, a mole rat? You know, it's, it's, it's a nice sociable mammal, um, and I can't <laughs> see what it would have to offer. Um, there are lots of great stories about extending uh, the lifespan of mice in all different sorts of ways. So that's the one which seems close to reality, but far from it as well. So I'd, I'd pick that one out as suspicious. Thank you, Simon. Jay? Yeah, I agreed with, with mostly what Simon was saying. The, uh, the one about the, the thoughts controlling the movement of a mouse, I was thinking like the rig that they would come up with, like they can detect if your brain is having activity, then you could turn that into 
you know, a signal that could just like poke the, the mouse and, you know, make it go in one direction or another. Like, it seems really rudimentary, but that, yeah, that could be that one and that, that answers that question. It, it's definitely possible. The cancer treatment one, that one seems a little vague to me, um, but I absolutely think, uh, sure, it, that's, that's a lot more plausible than the, the mouse one and the, with the mole rat. And like, I find that weird. Yeah, especially that you, you, you names a specific rat, like the mole rat is different than any, any other rat. So I think that one's the fake. Bob? Okay. Yeah, I agree with a lot of what everyone's saying here. Um, we're getting so good at detecting specific types of cells, specifically cancer cells. Yeah, just a matter of time, and this might be it where we could really just hone in on just the types of cells we wanted, we want to wipe out and, and, uh, spare everything else around it. Thought, the thought control of the living mouse. Yeah, like what Simon said, that what kind of, what kind of control are we talking about? I mean, it's, it could be very rudimentary, uh, control, and, uh, we, we've made lots of progress in, in that, in that area the past decade or so. And, the one that's really getting me is the doubling of the lifespan from 48. That's huge. That's like, that's like turning an 80 year old, you know, allowing someone to live to be 160. That's a, that's a gargantuan leap that I, that I, I would have heard about. <laughs> okay. Sometimes you just gotta go there. And Dr. N. Yeah, I was gonna use that argument for the, uh, the controlling the mouse one is that I kind of follow that research pretty closely and I hadn't heard that. But, um, I was wondering if you're tweaking a recent news item I did hear. That was more of a rat. Don't you hate when you, that happens, Steve? <laughs> I know. There's a, there's a, a recent rat-to-rat rat study where they did that. I didn't, with human to mouse, I, I didn't hear. So yeah, it's absolutely plausible. It's just, I don't know if anyone's done that, you know, that. They were letting one rat control another rat? Well, you know, influence the movement. They'd run, you know, one mat goes through a maze and then the, the rat who didn't go through the maze gets the signals from the rat who did and they do better. They, they learn the maze from the other mat, other rat. Wow, that's um, cool. That's wild. Yeah, with computer chips, you know, so it's actually, you know, the information is brain to computer to computer to brain sort yeah. of transfer um, information. The cancer one, yes, yeah, sure. We cure cancer in mice every, every six months. Um, the, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm having a hard time with the doubling of the life expectancy too. Uh, that's, that's huge. I mean, it could just be crappy research. That's kind of overselling it. The other, the other question I had was, are these healthy rat, mat, uh, mice at baseline or are they, Doubling life expectancy in a disease model of mice that they're curing with the stem cells. Don't tell them shit. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yes, or, I know. Um, yeah, I know what you're it, it's a little bit. I'm gonna uh, say that the doubling of the life expectancy is the fiction. Okay, so, uh, we're gonna uh, go back to the John, audience now. Yeah. That's okay. No, I'm with the audience. We are all well. Shaped. Maybe. All right, we're gonna poll the audience <laughs> one more time and see if uh, they've been influenced. So, uh, applaud if you think the uh, cancer treatment being tested on mice is the fiction. One, one, one. Wow, that one went down. <laughs> Um, number two, the comparative biology study doubling the life expectancy of the mouse. Mm. Oh. You have an influence. Converts, yeah. Influenza. Sheeple. The last one. <laughs> Controlling uh, the mouse with the thoughts, uh, the thoughts of a person. Yeah. A few and one very enthusiastic. Yes. All right. So let's do this. Let's take these in order. Okay. New cancer treatment being tested on mice shows no side effects. The treatment attacks only cancer cells and leaves the neighboring healthy cells alone. Nobody on the panel thought that this one was the fiction. This one is science. Uh, sorry. Uh, shock. <laughs> was that like the science project that a little girl is at the study? No, no. This one is a 
study that came out of University of Missouri, Professor M. Frederick Hawthorne. Uh, I'll read you the main paragraph here from the uh, article. Cancer cells grow faster than normal cells and in the process absorb more materials than normal cells. Hawthorne's team took advantage of that fact by getting cancer cells to take in and store a boron chemical designed by Hawthorne. And when those boron-infused cancer cells were exposed to neutrons, the boron atom shattered and selectively tore apart the cancer cells, sparing the neighboring healthy cells. Excellent. Boron chemical treatment. That's very cool. Man, is there anything boron can't do? Put in my laundry. Right? <laughs> Great. All right, that's thrown in the dishwasher. <laughs> thinking, why was I, is that real? Am I yeah, no, that? boric acid is... Uh, we used cold. to kill cockroaches with it in Baltimore. Baltimore cockroaches are huge. It's like, I mean, unbelievable. No. <laughs> and, you know, you were in a row house. This was in college. You are in a row house in Baltimore. You can't get rid of your cockroaches. It doesn't matter. You killed every cockroach in your house. And next week, you got them from your neighbors. Hmm. I mean, it's just, that's it. They're just colonized. And massive. So one of the things you do, though, is you, you can put boric acid, like, behind the, the, the uh, appliances or whatever. And then the cockroaches will pick it up, take mm-hmm. it back to the nest, and kill everything in the nest. So you can at least keep them at bay a little bit by doing that. Yeah. Cool. And Very Borax cool. is like the brand, the name of the powder stuff that you yeah. can clean. Very nice. Handy. Moving on, number two. A comparative biology study shows the life expectancy of a mouse can double from four to eight years with an infusion of stem cells from the naked mole rat. So our entire group of skeptics up here, except for John, <laughs> believe that this one is fiction. Yes. The audience seems to think this, this could one be epic is fiction. For you, yeah. This one wow. is the fiction. Yeah, It's actually a little embarrassing. I, I, <laughs> I made the, I, I pretty much made this one up because the one I had selected for that I was going to tweak for fiction, another mouse article. It, it was almost too good. And it was like, how do I really turn this into a fiction? I think that would have been maybe a little too obvious. So I went this route instead, but you all snuffed it out. Yeah. Or sniffed it out, I should say. Very good. Um, it was a bit too much, four to eight years. Well, you know, the, uh, by the way, the naked mole rat, uh, the lifespan is 17 to 28 years. Wow. So there's your mouse. There's your naked mole rat. Is that the, this is the So I figured, you know, yeah. okay, you know, you, we're not going to say, I'm not going to say 17 years, but you, you know, maybe to eight. Might get a few people, John. (laughs) (laughs) And the interspecies thing is a little tricky too. But it's those stem cells, you know. Yeah. Those wonderful, wonderful stem cells. Magical stem cells. (laughs) (laughs) They are. So I pretty much made that one. Naked mole rats are like nasty. They are ugly looking little creatures. I'm okay with testing on those bastards. Look at that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, look at that guy. See that? And he's sticking his tongue out. I think he's kind of cute. No. Well, you like freaking. What, what do you like? Sloths. Sloths, yes. Sloths Did you see are the, the one they put a suit on? Yeah. I've seen them all. Okay. I've seen all the sloths. People send them to me all the time now, and like it's nice that they do it, but I've already. But the one you with guys the suit, like it. the collar was like coming way up on him. He was like yeah. this, you know what I mean? Did you see cute. the sloth getting the makeup done? No, I heard about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, you heard yeah. about it because I mentioned it. Mm-hmm. And comparative biology studies are cool, by the way. I'll just note that. Now, the last one, scientists have developed the means of allowing the thoughts of a person to control the movements of a mouse, uh, is science. Was I right? Well, what did you say, Jay? I said they they can detect if the person's thinking, you know, move left or move right, and then they just send a signal to a device on the mouse that kind of 
pokes it or pulls it or does not something. quite it's not quite that extreme i think bob you touched on it how you know to what extent is the control it's not all simon. that right it's just making simon his tail mentioned twitch it first. or something right? uh they are able to make the rat's tail move oh, there you go. Using, oh, using their mind is there a rat or a mouse uh mouse Rat, yeah, mouse, whatever. Whatever. <laughs> and little, little creature. So someone can think, and then it'll make the mouse's tail wiggle or something like that. Right. That's that's. What's the what's the connection? Oh, that's useful. Uh, you mean how are they doing it? Yeah. Uh, here we go. When monitoring the human brain activity, researchers look for specific EEG patterns known to correspond to visual stimulation. Uh, they use the strobe blinking light on a computer screen to match the frequency of the strobe of a synchro- uh, synchronized to match the frequency of the strobe. When they switched to concentrating on moving the rat's tail, the change in their focus disrupted the EEG, triggering a signal to be sent to a computer. Uh, okay. Right. The computer translated the signal into an ultrasonic pulse, <laughs> which stimulated the rat's motor cortex. Of the yeah, see, easy. Did so, that last weekend. There you go. <laughs> it's telepathy. <laughs> Well, and you know what the article, the uh, the, uh, the headline. headline of the article yeah, says here? here we World shittiest telepathy. <laughs> it's a new Scientology power. Right? Interspecies <laughs> telepathy. Yes. Human thoughts make the mouse. Move. Yeah, the next one is controlling the rat's salinity. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, good job, there everyone. Are, John, thank you. thank you. Very close. Yeah. Better luck next time. John. I still think there's some bastard around the corner with a thread that's tied <laughs> to the rat's tail. Exactly. <laughs> well done. Evan. All right. Thanks, Thanks, Evan. All right. Well, thank you all for joining me. Jay, you're going to finish us off with a quote. I am. Um, but I am going to ask the entire audience to help me mm. yell the name out. The, the author of this quote is Neil deGrasse Tyson. And we're going to say it like, Neil deGrasse Tyson, okay? Follow me. Follow my how lead. Else, how else would you say it? Well, there's lots of ways, trust me. NDGT. Okay, the quote is, Still, our knowledge of the planets was meager, and where ignorance lurks, so too do the frontiers of discovery and imagination. Neil deGrasse Tyson! (laughs) Wow. All right, well, thank you for joining me this week, everyone. Thank you to our live audience who is here with us uh, recording the show. Thank you to John and Simon for joining us. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Doctor, thank you. Thanks, everybody. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible.